Hello, Clever Harvest Tribe, and welcome back to our Resilience Series. We're here with Season 5, Episode 5, with Claudia Sabata Adler, soon to be Dr. Adler, as she will be defending her thesis. If you're listening to it after that, this is Dr. Adler to you. <laughs> <laughs> That's very kind. Thank you for the introduction, Gabby. Yeah, I'm very glad to have you back, especially since we had you in the first season. I couldn't see you, so now we're almost cara cara, to say face to face. Cara cara, that's very true. No, it's wonderful. It's wonderful to be back. Love what you do and the people that you have on as well, so it's great. In the past 75 years, the global north, I assume you mean North America and Europe, have dominated the global south so that would be latin america africa parts of asia middle east middle east so how exactly has that happened i know in general we might know but not all of us are history buffs so what examples would you bring to the fore well i'd probably say it all started in 1492 from there onwards, we have European powers that physically conquered the rest of the world and that sort of imposition of an accumulation wealth monopoly. So that really happened by looting and destroying native societies. Our modern day colonialism is for me what we understand as development and educational programs and empowerment programs, which are enforced on mainly marginalized communities, women and girls. And this sort of comes from the idea that these women and these girls need empowerment and they need empowerment through accessing these services and these development programs. I think that's problematic. How exactly should that work? There are sometimes where the person means well, but it comes across very wrong. So what should they actually be doing? <laughs> Good intentions are one thing. But I don't think when it comes to dealing with people, good intentions are what we should be looking at. We really need to be looking at communities as equal partners. We come with this sort of idea that we're the professionals or that we're the experts. And we know. And the moment that you come in that position, you're not going to treat the communities or the people that you're working with as your equal partners, there's nothing there for you to learn. And so what the thesis really looks like is this lack of engagement and presence that's actually dividing people rather than uniting. And that comes with good intentions. It's not malicious, but it does come from a place of ignorance. And I think that also needs to be addressed. Yeah, that's one thing that I feel may have been forgotten, no matter how quote-unquote educated you are, there are still some things that you are ignorant about, and you have to acknowledge that. What happens is, because of our mainstream education system, other ways of knowing are discredited, other sciences are discredited. The findings of the research shows that anything that has hierarchy is ultimately oppressive. And empowerment moves from this place of liberation and freedom and inclusivity. The strict curriculum disempowers its learners. It doesn't allow for what we were talking about, co-creation of knowledge, this unity. It comes from the teacher knowing and instructing the students that do not know. 
So it comes from this presumption of ignorance or that there's a presumed deficit of knowledge or a presumed disempowerment. And this same system is what we bring on to the global south, thinking that we know, even though we have good intentions. You know, if you look back, I'm sure that the missionaries also had good intentions when they came to colonize places like Latin America and Africa and so forth. They were full of good intentions. And there needs to be a challenge to these assumptions of education and programs and so forth when they're coming from that very reductionist lens. One example that I feel that they're making some progress with is in agriculture. Many times, as you said, with colonization, certain crops are brought over and then there gets to be this homogenization. It's like, we only grow wheat. We only grow soy here. But now there are NGOs that are run by clever hybrids, maybe people that speak English and also the native language and grew up in the culture where they're reviving native varieties of plants. And most of the time, the people who took care of these plants to make sure they didn't die out were indigenous women in the community. It's still not a perfect system, but there are so many things that they've learned over generations that it would take an anthropologist or an agronomist so much time to learn from scratch, but they can just ask. The question with that is why aren't we calling them scientists? That's exactly what I'm talking about. So that's a discrimination in our education system. They are scientists and their knowledge is sometimes more than what we find in our own institutions, but we're not seeing them as equal partners because it has to come packaged that's where our education system or our mainstream education system is very much reduced. That's a massive issue. It's problematic and we have an education crisis, like it or not. What are the reforms you suggest if we have these modern quote-unquote techniques and also this ancient wisdom? How can we combine the two to create a holistic approach? That's a fascinating question. From the thesis, what's surged is a framework that looks at redefining our relationship with each other and how we co-create knowledge. There needs to be a bit of an overhaul of our current mainstream education system. There's a lot of dissatisfaction. I don't believe it nurtures children. I see it as an extension of the marketplace. There isn't much about our education system that addresses happiness and addresses children being creative and finding out who am I and then working with that. It's more about learning, memorizing and consuming knowledge that benefits the market economy. And I don't have a, a solution necessarily. What we've been able to devise is a framework where we work on certain principles based on humility, based on presence, on creativity on co-learning and fundamentally the whole idea is that the learner is able to then co-create their own knowledge and then almost spin off and not be dependent upon a system to continue being instructed. That's the whole idea of it is based on this empowerment framework of our mainstream education or our health system and so forth. It's all about dependency. How can you consume more education? How can you consume more health services? Yeah, unfortunately, education as a whole has become a business from higher education all the way down to pre-kindergarten. Then they are not willing to change. <laughs> That's the issue. This process has been fundamental to me. 
because ultimately I think change happens internally and it happens in your own environment. And if through my writing and discussions, it begins to invite individuals to question and rethink and challenge, then I think that's a good thing. Backwards to this concept of global north and global south, you were born in the global south, but then moved to the global north. So how has that shaped you as a person? Fundamentally, it's not that the global north is bad and the global south is good. This year, I think, has been quite fundamental for me, particularly where I sat down and I wrote and I look at my life, the context of my mother and my grandmother within that social, political, cultural aspect. What really surged from that process was identifying our commonalities as women, understanding that sort of my empowerment comes from theirs and theirs from me. I think that was a really important process to go through, having that space and reflection to understand that, regardless of where I grew up and where I was born. The women before me are the ones that have shaped my life, my values, my norms. Recognizing them, not as different to me because. I speak a different language or I speak it better is essentially one story. All links in the same chain. Yeah, exactly. With your children, now they're the next link in the chain. Mm. How do you see their experience being different from yours? You can't really compare it necessarily. I come from that refugee background, not having much of a network or a community, it being very much that struggle that so many other have faced as first-generation immigrants. Particularly us, we were illegal as well. And so that adds on a whole bunch of other challenges and fears of deportation and insecurity and work exploitation and everything else that you want to throw in there. We probably experienced some of that. And so the boys, they don't have that, but that doesn't mean that I can't speak with them and share with them our stories and our narratives where it's important for them to connect and understand that place of where we came from. My children have many mothers, so I'm not their only mama. It's my mom, it's my grandma, it's my aunties. They're also the boys' mothers and they have that same right to discipline and talk and play with them as they are theirs as well. <laughs> Yeah, it's nice to have a united extended family. That was one of the things that I wish I had more time with my grandparents. Most of them died by the time I was in my early 20s. So it, it's nice that they still have the opportunity. Like having written the story of my grandmother, I think that's been really lovely to have that on paper and hopefully have them engage with her story when they're older. I'm not from the global south, of course, but as I am of African background, is similar situation is we can only go back about two or three generations. We don't have that many details, but people who are maybe Caucasian and they've lived in the same place for 500, 600 years, they have a lot more wealth and knowledge and financially sometimes. It's a learning curve sometimes. I don't know exactly what term would be best to use for that. No, I agree. I think there's also that cultural displacement that we have. And I think that's something that's not discussed 
frequently enough. There's that physical displacement of your place and your history, but then you also have that cultural displacement, which takes time getting used to and understanding a different system and so forth. I'm going through it on another level here in Germany. I've been here for three years now, but it's still sometimes I'm like, I have no idea what's going on. (laughs) Sometimes you're just like, I really want to do this thing in my language or my culture. I know how to do this. But in this culture, I'm starting over. How can someone deal with those feelings? Well, people deal with those feelings differently, don't they? Community is so important. That's where being a refugee and being on your own is so difficult. I look back at sort of my mum's story and she arrived in the UK when she was 27. She didn't speak really a word of English. She was received by distant friends. The next day she was thrown in to waitress at a Greek restaurant without a word of English, signaling to each other, no rights, no anything. Somebody like my mother would be defined or classified as vulnerable. That's wrong because even though she was in a vulnerable setting, she's not a vulnerable person. And the reason why she was able to get through and and continue and persevere and challenge was because she was empowered. And I believe that women are empowered. It's not to say that there aren't vulnerable settings, and I'd like to make that distinction, but the issue is actually identifying people as vulnerable rather than understanding that they are already empowered. And then there's this realization of that empowerment. And that comes from you learning through your challenges and through uncertainty. Life is uncertain and life is dangerous and it's through that learning curve that then you understand who you are your capabilities and so forth and from there emerges this sense of being or becoming what we can't control is our external what we can control is our internal and how we then deal and process those external challenges and that's something that's missing within our education system our education system is all externally based it's about understanding knowledge and accumulating knowledge from that external perspective when we talk about education i don't think it's necessarily synonymous to learning there's a lot of things that you have to understand about yourself to be able to proceed and move forward. Maybe if someone has already finished their formal education, what can they do to fill in that gap? Maybe they have a lot of knowledge about their chosen career, but they don't know anything about emotional intelligence or just how to perceive what they want to be as a person. What can they do to fill in that gap? I think that's quite common. I think that's also some of the issues that we see with societies where we have people that have a lot externally, money, warm homes, food, and so forth. But there are mental health issues. There's depression, there's anxiety, there's stress, there's unhappiness. And I think that comes from a sense of endless pursuit for that external. Yeah, I'd like to share with you a quick story. I've told it in my thesis and it's from the 15th century from Asia. And this spiritual leader, who's also a weaver and a poet, he talks about the musk deer. And so there's this musk deer in the Himalaya region. When it comes to mating season, he has a pouch right here and it exudes this wonderful aroma. 
And so the mustache goes around the forest, endlessly trying to find where this smell is coming from. So he's searching and searching, and he can't find it until he drops with exhaustion. And as he drops, he pierces his pouch with one of his horns. And the most amazing smell comes out, and he finally realizes that it was him all along. And so in the same way, as we go through life and these challenges and uncertainties, we realize that we are essentially empowered. And so what an education system ought to do is be able to facilitate that realization. That's my story. <laughs> wow, okay. That was not how I was expecting that to go, but that was a very good point. How would I say it? It's a process that no one else can do for you. That's exactly it. You can facilitate that, but you can't give that. And that's the issue where we see with these development programs or these sort of empowerment programs for women where they want to bestow empowerment on somebody. And that's very much an external empowerment. To be honest with you, I think it's because there isn't any money when it comes to any form of internal realization. You can't sell it, can't make money or monetize it. And I think that's the issue. Our system at the moment, it prioritizes capital over people and over health. And so the moment that people realize how to be healthy, how to be empowered, you're not going to make money out of that. It's sad, but true. I won't go too deeply into that because that will become a whole other conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Colonialism as in ships and slaves is over, but we're in neocolonialism now in some respects. So what is the difference? How would you describe it? I think you've said it yourself. It's through policies and it's through programs and it's through a humanitarian system that disables communities. It's we're bestowing an education system that has no relevance to that community or country or context. So those neocolonial projects that continue by people with very good intentions. But there's arrogance and ignorance in that approach. The moment that you think you need to save somebody, that's where you need to reevaluate where you're coming from. To me, when I think colony, I think automatically dependency. We need to get away from that mindset as people of color in societies that are not in the global south, we need to get away from that mindset of dependency. I cannot do this myself. I need help from another source to be able to achieve this, which is, it's not saying you should never ask for help, but no, it's different. They're two very different positions. I don't believe in that individualistic, self-made person. Any sort of accomplishments that we have is because of the whole community of people that are with us. That idea of individuality is what's gotten us into so much trouble, particularly with the climate crisis. The moment that we see ourselves separate from nature, we see ourselves separate from others, that's where those issues and that struggle comes from. And you can trace that back to our current market economy, where it's all about individual game and accumulation. Our view of seeing nature as a resource rather than us being nature. Sometimes resilience can be misinterpreted as like, oh, you're so strong, keep on going, and then you don't get the help you need. But how can you 
find a balance where you're mentally healthy, you're stable to a point, but you still feel comfortable asking for help when you need it. What is the missing piece to have that balance? I think there are two things there which are interesting. There needs to be a distinction between charity and mutual aid. When we talk about mutual aid, the learning that I have and what I get from helping you is reciprocal. This is a mutual helping. This is a collective sort of identity. If you look at the ancient African philosophy of Ubuntu, which is I am because you are, it's again, it's understanding that my humanity comes from you. That's very hard to practice when everything around us is about driving differences between people. But definitely this is someone to watch. We will definitely be seeing more of you because unfortunately a lot of academics, they are very, very smart, but they are also not that good at, at explaining things. So you have both sides. So we will definitely be yeah. seeing more of you. Absolutely. Whenever you want, it's been an absolute pleasure. I know I haven't met your boys, but they are very fortunate to have a mom like you. Thank you.